Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. This is an episode on an unknown hero, little known anyway, hero in political philosophy. His name is Auberon Herbert. I checked the pronunciation with two or three Britishers, and it's Herbert, not Herbart, as I had previously believed for 60 years almost. Herbert was born in 1838, and he died in 1906. He's unquestionably the best political philosopher since John Locke, who wrote in 1688. It was about two centuries, 1884, he published his A Politician in Trouble About His Soul, which was his main contribution, main public, uh, well-received contribution to political philosophy. I want to explain why he was an advance over Locke, and why he was not um, superseded until Ayn Rand. If, not quite superseded, that's not the, uh, the, his value was not exceeded until Ayn Rand in 1946. She began coming out with political uh, philosophy, and in 1962-63 was her two essays that put everything, make everything settled, man's rights and the nature of government. So what was Locke doing? What was his achievement? Locke was the creator of the concept of rights. There were adumbrations of it before him, and you could argue that the levelers, Richard Overton, for instance, um, 30 or 40 years before Locke, had the idea, but Locke really had it and nailed it down and popularized it. What do I mean by had the concept of rights? Most people don't have it today. To have a right to do something means, and Locke recognized that it means, that you are the one with the moral claim to choose whether you do it or not. It does not say that you are choosing right. It says that you must be free of the interference of others in deciding what you will do in this area. For instance, you have a right to take drugs, despite what our governments tell you. You have a, a right to get any kind of medical care that your doctor and you and a willing pharmaceutical company would sell to you. You have plenty of rights that are not recognized. And it doesn't mean that what you choose to do with your freedom is morally good. For example, it's wrong, morally despicable, to take cocaine or heroin or narcotics. But that's your right. It's your life. It's your body. You are king. 
over the decisions that affect only you. That's the idea of rights. It's an area of freedom that you, morality sanctions you being the one to choose in this area. Today, most people don't grasp that rights are, first of all, not things that government grants, but conditions of existence, of social existence that morality demands nor did they understand that you have the right to make the wrong choice. You have the right to take drugs. You have the right to ingest stupid and harmful uh, medical uh, supplements into your body. You have the right to invest poorly. You have the right to kill yourself, which may be a, actually a rational thing to do if you are just facing a few years of pain with no hope, I mean real pain, that's for you to decide. It's your right because it's your life. So Locke got that concept and he put it forth in the second treatise of government. He showed the basis for it and the implications of it. He got the implications more accurately then he got the basis. He offered two bases, two competing approaches for why we have rights. The correct one was, we are not brute animals. We live as rational beings and rational beings need to be free. The wrong one was, and this is the one that's more loudly stated and more famous, God owns us. So if you treat another person as your slave, or if you damage or harm another person, you're hurting God. So God wants us to do certain things and he created us so he owns us. So you're not a slave to the government because you're a slave to God not exactly the best of justifications of individual rights. But Locke was a unique philosopher who held a view of religion that is the most benevolent you could find. The way I put it is God wants us to be happy egoists. The way he puts it is God gave the world to mankind to use and prosper and to achieve his, uh, I think he uses the word happiness, but his well-being at any rate, his preservation, his survival. And uh, if that's your view of God, which is impossible to justify, because it's impossible to justify the existence of a God. But if that's your view of God, then what God wants for us is to leave each other alone so we can all be free and all progress and profit. It's the best wrong view I've ever heard of for rights, but it is a wrong view. The other view that we're rational, we need it because we are rational beings, not brutes, is essentially correct. 
But Locke wrote before Immanuel Kant, about 88 years before Immanuel Kant published his Critique of Pure Reason. Kant's philosophy socialized everything. He switched from the objective, from your relationship to reality being rational, objective, to a shared delusion. The collectively subjective is all there is. So let's call it objective. Let's call it reason if it's a prejudice that we all share. So the result of Locke, uh, sorry, of Kant, was collectivism. Collectivism got going first with the Rousseau, whom Kant greatly admired. He had a picture of Rousseau in his study, uh, who was not far, you know, only a generation behind him. And Kant gave a elaborate metaphysical and epistemological justification for collect <clears throat> collectivism. So Locke was implicitly either an individualist or a supernaturalist, but he wasn't a collectivist. Herbert is an individualist. You can look him up in Wikipedia and he'll say in the beginning of it, that he's an individualist, meaning that he starts from the, what he calls the axiom that each individual is a self-owner. You own yourself. Now that's what uh, objectivism would phrase as, your, you exist as an end in yourself. Your life is an end in yourself. Your life is your own. You're not owned by anybody else. Now, one of the problems, one of the small problems <clears throat> with um, Herbert's political philosophy, which I'm going to quote from his best writings in a minute, is that you cannot say an individual owns himself, literally. It's a metaphor. And what it's a metaphor is that is that the individual has free will and that the proper moral system is egoism, rational selfishness. And he's mixed on that score. He's, he's a lot better than most people, most philosophers, but he's not perfect. So Herbert, first of all, supplies the individualist metaphysics that Locke is implicitly counting on but does not know to give voice to because there wasn't any collectivism to oppose it to. Second of all, Locke saw rights as your protection against arbitrary power of other people, including of the government. And that's correct, but Herbert gets that it's physical force. He is very clear the word force must appear 
100 or 200 times in this essay. I'm going to read you some of the best uh, sections of it. Herbert got his general orientation and much of his specific uh, ideas from Herbert Spencer. So ironic, Herbert Spencer, Auburn Herbert. But Spencer was very mixed. Spencer would try to apply Darwinian evolution to political philosophy, and he argued that capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism, was the best social system because it was good for the race. So that's collectivism. Herbert didn't pick that part up, thank God. Let me read you some of the um, great, great statement. This is from a politician in trouble about his soul. It's in the form of a dialogue. So he says, do you not see, said Markham, first that as a mental abstract, meaning abstraction, physical force is directly opposed to all true morality. And secondly, that it practically drives out of existence the moral forces. Contrast force and morality with each other. How can an act done under compulsion have any moral element in it, seeing that what is moral is the free act of an intelligent being? If you tie a man's hands, there is nothing moral about his not committing murder. Great concretization, but wait, there's more. Next page. Force, you cannot see too clearly that force and reason, which last is the essence of the moral act, are at two opposite poles. Now, in one sentence, he's saying force and reason are opposites, and reason is the essence of morality, two key tenets of the objectivist philosophy. The primary virtue is rationality. If I were to speak your language, I would say there's only one commandment, thou shalt think. And force and mind are opposites. That's Ayn Rand for both of those. He said, force and reason, which last is the essence of the moral act, are at two opposite poles. When you act by reason, you are not acting under the compulsion of other men. When you act under compulsion, you are not acting under the guidance of reason. The man who compels his neighbor is not the man who reasons with and convinces him. He takes upon himself to treat him not as a being possessed of reason, but as an animal in whom reason is not. Skipping ahead. Moreover, can you not see that the very idea of force necessarily involves a fatal absurdity? 
if A has power over B, you must assume that if in the first instance he has power over himself. No man can be master of another before he is master of himself. But if so, then B, if you are to assume equal rights as the basis of the social order, is also master of himself, which entirely destroys any rightful power on the part of A to be his master. And he, here's an objection that's made. Might I not claim greater freedom for the abler and better man, for the more civilized man? His person he's debating with says, Why should you, replied Markham. What does any man or race want more than freedom for themselves? Admit that anyone may take more than his share, that is, in other words, that he may restrain by force the exercise of the faculties of others, and in what a sea of moral confusion you are at once plunged. Force is the antichrist. I mean, it's hard to get, um, it's hard to get better than that. But I'm going to do it right now. He makes the distinction between initiated force and retaliatory force, which is key. I mean, you can't get anywhere in defending rights if you don't do that. He says, six months ago, I knocked a scoundrel down who had snatched a lady's watch from her and handed him over to the police. I do not say we can get through life without using force, but when we do, in the simplest and apparently most justifiable case, even to repel force, we are outside the moral relation and we are, are simply living again in that force relation in which man as half animal once lived and in which the animals now live. Underneath all life lies the great law of self-preservation a law which we may fulfill either by using force as the animals do or by universally accepting the reasonable relation which forbidding force guarantees freedom to all. <coughs> and those who use force may compel us at any moment to act towards them in the force relation. But the important thing is to see that it's only when we are living and acting in the reason relation that we have distinct moral guidance to tell us what are right and wrong actions. While in the force relation, we can only act by guesswork and without any certain guidance. Uh, there's more. Um, where he says, in italics, I don't know that I can get to it quickly, in italics, force can only be used to restrain force. Oh, I found it right here. Our great purpose is to get rid of force, to banish it wholly from our dealings with each other to give it notice to quit from this changed world of ours. But as long as some men, 
like Bill Sykes and all his tribe, that's a, in literature, famous criminal, are willing to make use of it for their own ends or to make use of fraud, which is only force in disguise, right? Wearing a mask and evading our consent, just as force with violence openly disregards it. So long we must use italics, force to restrain force. <laughs> that is the one and only rightful employment of force. Force in the defense of the plain, simple rights of liberty. And it's not just, you know, passing. He hammers that in. He makes that uh, the basis of his opposition to socialism, his defense of laissez-faire capitalism, <coughs> which is the word he used. I think he got it. It was current then, laissez-faire capitalism, as a description. And he opposes anarchy. He explicitly says, he nails it, that, um, let's see if I can get to that one. He says the same thing that Locke says, if I can't get to it quickly, that under anarchy, oh yeah, he says there's five million men make five million governments under anarchy. And that's not an improvement because each one is operating as his own judge, jury, and executioner. So he has the idea that you have to have a government to prevent the use of individual whim to um, enforce your own law, which, I mean, given what's going on today and the different law standards that are out there from Sharia law to critical race theory law and uh, laws against immigration, laws against drugs, laws against everything. Everybody wants a law. A law against abortion is the latest. So he is uh, fantastic in understanding the issue is force versus rights. The grounding of it is reason. Government is the coercive agency which is necessary to restrain force properly. I don't think he says under objective control. That's a little bit too philosophical for him. And that all the interferences that violate, let's say, fair, are the initiation of force against the innocent. <clears throat> and he says, if you're prepared to wield force, you can give anything to anybody. To the poor, you take the property of the rich man. To the rich man, you assemble an army to get him a territory to rule. Um, so, he gets what's going on, and he's as polemics against socialism called socialism. And he says it's a system of compulsion. It's people are not allowed to make deals and to hold their own property. 
he makes the excellent point that under socialism, capitalistic acts are not permitted. But under capitalism, you can act as a socialist if you want. In other words, you can give, give stuff away, uh, you can have charity, you can uh, go off in a commune. So he gets it. So what doesn't he get? What, what did Ayn Rand need to add? Two things. Really fully rejecting altruism as evil, championing selfishness as virtue, the essence of virtue, rational selfishness, and understanding that the issue for government is objectivity. So he tries to, he defends selfishness. He says there's two kinds of selfishness. When you hear that, you know that you're not really there all the way. You know, there's the good selfishness, which is that we all have to take care of ourselves and that we are um, peacefully achieving our own self-interest, concerned with our self-interest is how he describes it, and that is necessary and good. But then there's the selfishness, the, the use of the term or the form of selfishness, which consists of violating the rights of others and treating them as your slaves, subjecting them to force. And that's bad. Yeah, but that's not selfishness, that's altruism. And he says, you know, the good form of selfishness is really what this, the Sermon on the Mount was calling for. So he, is, he needs work in basic philosophy and epistemology and in understanding the basis of morality. But my God, is he good in political philosophy and on individualism versus collectivism? He even gets that democracy is a system of force. He says, you know, uh, uh, five people vote, three of them vote to use force against the other two to enslave them. That's not moral. He gets that society is just a bunch of individuals, so that it's uh, not some public good or collective or majority uh, as an entity. It's just <clears throat> three people overcoming two people. So uh, I really want to sing his praises. Now, he was in Parliament, but he got in before uh, he converted, so to speak, to laissez-faire. But he stayed in a little bit even after, and he, he was able to use that as a, a platform to advance his views. But he couldn't win. He couldn't win because he wasn't prepared to say altruism is evil. It's not a perverted form of selfishness. It's the opposite of selfishness. It's treating men as sacrificial animals. And, of course, he couldn't answer Kant's uh, attack on the mind, which is uh, necessary to even discuss all these issues. But, boy, what a hero of freedom this man was. I was, I'll just end with a little personal note. 
I was staggered to learn today that although he is a Briton, was a Briton, he came to America and was in my hometown, Richmond, Virginia. He witnessed the siege of, of Richmond in the Civil War. So uh, Richmond is not a big place, you know, and I, I wonder how close he was to the home I grew up in. So that's a little personal uh, attachment I have beyond the philosophical to Auberon Herbert. Thank you, and uh, we're officially ending now, but uh, let's look, uh, Daniel, if there's any uh, super chat questions here. No questions. No question. Great. So we can end at 4.30-ish. I started late due to technical difficulties. Software and Windows do not necessarily play nice together. Thank you. I will see you next Monday on HBTV.